Ian Murray wrote about a rather well-known Anglican priest and pastor named J.C. Ryle. Now, that na name might be familiar. Uh, it's probably familiar to you if you've ever talked to our family about some of the books that we recommend to young parents. His book, Duty to Parents, is really important, uh, wonderful text that he wrote. We also recommend his book, Thoughts to Young Men, Practical Religion. I could go on and on about his writings. They are always lucid and profound. They are always applicable and biblical. Um, they're always rooted in, in, in almost like a blue-collar appreciation for Christianity lived in the real world and at ground level. One of the things that I find so fascinating about the man is that he remained faithful within the Anglican system. And he wasn't trying to rebel against the state church that he grew up in. Instead, he thought, if I can do anything to serve the people in England, it'll be to help reform and to change and to purify that church. And so he remained within that system his entire ministry. And uh, one of the saddest aspects of his life is that when he died, his writings and his work and his ministry had largely fallen out of favor. In fact, J.C. Ryle was forgotten. When he died, though there were lots of people at his funeral because he was the bishop of that area and he had been in ministry for a long time, there weren't very many people circulating his works. He, he was kind of from a previous generation, a bygone era, he really didn't fit the practical needs of the people anymore. And to add insult to injury, his son, who he had endeavored to raise faithfully in the church and with the knowledge of the truth, had basically followed a liberal path. His son had essentially rejected these truths of the gospel that were so precious to J.C. Ryle. And he had gone on to be a professor in England at one of the universities. And at the time of his father's death, as he was sort of on the decline it was his son's liberal teachings and books that were selling more and more and more all the time. And if you look at it really as a snapshot about the time when J.C. Ryle died, it would look like he had lost and his son had won. That the liberal progressive side had really won the day. And yet now, 100 years later, we see how God in his providence has caused that which was not biblical to be long forgotten. No one even knows who J.C. Ryle's son is anymore, and yet his writings have experienced a resurgence and are now being used once again to profit the church. One of the reasons why I think that is true and why I think it serves as an introduction for our sermon this morning is because if there was anything that Ryle was concerned about, it was that the church had a biblical theology that they understood the grand scope of redemptive history, that they realized that the Bible was not 66 independent separate books that were just compiled together in a collection, but that it is one book, one story, one theme that runs from the very beginning of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. And that to really know the Bible is to know this arc of redemptive history from creation through the fall, through redemption and ultimate restoration and consummation of everything that God had planned for us from before the foundation of the world. And he frames it up this way in a really interesting quote in Murray's biography, and I'll just read it to you, and then we'll get into our text for this morning. Murray says this, there is a, quote, whole system of Christianity revealed in Scripture. 
and it is needful for Christians to understand it. He, Ryle, believed that it is here that many are weak. Their theology is vague and misty. Quoting Ryle, he says, they have no clear idea of the nature, place, and proportion of the various doctrines which compose the gospel. Its several truths have no definite position in their minds. Of the great systematic statements in the epistles to the Romans and Galatians and Hebrews, they are profoundly ignorant. I entreat you to observe how important it is for Christians to be sound in the faith and to be armed with a clear scriptural knowledge of the whole system of the gospel. Well, beloved, I hope that today is one of those days where together we get to study even more clearly that whole system of the gospel and do so through our teacher and our tutor, the Apostle Paul, specifically in the book of Romans, the 11th chapter, the 25th verse through to the end. The first word that I want you to see here is the word mystery. Mystery describes the beginning of what I will entitle this sermon as and what I think is the theme here, which is solely Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. Earlier in this series, we referenced the fact that the solas of the Reformation, the very foundation of our theology that we believe and teach here at this church, is that Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, define everything that comprises the very thrust of what we study in Scripture. It's all about Him, and it's all ultimately for His glory. I see that, of course, at the very end in verse 36, where it says, to him be glory forever, amen. You could literally end every letter in the New Testament, and the old for that matter, to him be glory forever, amen. But much of this is, in fact, a mystery to us, and it's revealed bit by bit as God causes the writers of the Old and New Testament to display his truth. So let's look at the first one. We'll call this the mystery. It's in verses 25 through 27. And again, I'm just going to walk through the text verse by verse and hopefully explain it in a way that makes sense. Verse 25 begins with the word lest in my English translation. It's actually a clause, it's a clause in the original language that shows the purpose. It is a purpose clause. You could almost say in order that. Everything that Paul has written up until this point is for this reason. And it's really important to notice it because if Paul says everything I've written in all of these 11 chapters of Romans essentially boils down to this, you ought to take note of his statement. So he says, in order that or lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery. He is very concerned that we as Gentiles do not become arrogant or conceited. We can begin with the application for the sermon today, which is this. Do not be arrogant or conceited. Do not be proud. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Be careful. Caution yourself. It's a very steep fall, and there is no railing, and it is dark and wet. And you are moving very quickly at times through your understanding of theology and truth, such that without preparing for it, you come across a very sharp corner and you end up doing what many Christians do, and they fall off the edge and wreck themselves in the valley of conceit and pride and arrogance and a disregard for everything that God has promised even to 
the Jewish people. And so Paul is writing to Gentiles, and he's saying, I know this is a risk for you people. So I want you to be very careful. Slow down before you assume that everything I've said up until this point means that we can discard every single reference in the Bible to the Jewish nation or to the fulfillment of his covenants in a literal sense. Don't be wise, don't be arrogant in your own sight, in your own conceit. He says this to them now. I don't want you, or I want you to understand this mystery. Um, What's a mystery? A mystery is not maybe what we usually define the word mystery as, which is something that is hidden. In fact, quite different. When Paul says the word mystery, here's what I'd like you to remember. He means it's no longer a mystery. Can I put it that way for you? No longer a mystery. I want you to understand, brothers, what is no longer a mystery. If Paul calls it a mystery, it's because it's no longer a mystery. Now, I know that sounds mysterious, but that's what it means. I'm not trying to confuse you. I'm not trying to be smart. I'm just saying this is what it means. The mystery is identified as a mystery that is now solved, and therefore it's not a mystery anymore. He talks about this, for example, when he talks about marriage. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, no, I fully understand that marriage is a mystery. What what, what he's saying is that marriage, the mystery of marriage, is that it actually, believe it or not, reflects something that God had planned before the foundation of the world, and that is a relationship between him and his church. And Paul, writing to the Ephesians, tells them, I didn't even understand this until now. God revealed it to me. It's a mystery, and now I'm revealing it to you, which means it's no longer hidden. Well, what's the thing no longer hidden here? He goes on to describe it. Here's the mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, please note, if you would, the word Israel and the word Gentiles. In the application section of the sermon, I'm going to be explaining that this is a really important aspect of knowing what the text says. But he is making a clear distinction. He is talking about Israel, and he's talking about Gentiles. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. He's talking about certainly a a national ethnic reference to the one and a national ethnic reference to the other. There is a distinction here. There is a difference made. Now, before you think that we're going to rush ahead and make more of a distinction than we ought to or espouse some kind of radical discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament or say that there was a way to get saved in the old and a different way to get saved in the new, believe me, by the time this sermon ends, if you believe there's a radical discontinuity, you will be disappointed. Likewise, if you believe there's radical continuity, this is going to disappoint you as well. So perhaps my aim is to disappoint everybody this morning and merely arrive at the middle position, which is correct, because it's mine. I don't mean it like that, but carry on. He says, there is absolutely, literally that, a partial hardening has come upon this Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, we could say that's the true Israel, the spiritual Israel, and we would be accurate in saying that. But it would also be incomplete. Because if we're going to have a complete understanding, verse 26 would say that the mystery is further defined this way, and in this way, looking forward, all Israel will be saved. 
Now, he's going to go on to quote the Old Testament to prove his point, but you can see that not only will the entire peoples of God, the one people of God, Jews and Gentiles together, all of the elect, the remnant from every tribe, people, and tongue, not only will all of them come together in the end and formulate what we call true Israel, as he does refer to them in other passages of Scripture, or, for example, in Genesis six, uh, in uh, Galatians 6, 16, where he talks about the, the people of God, the children of God, the Israel of God. The reality is there is also here a, an Israel being spoken of. And Paul reaches back into the Old Testament to prove his point. Now let's look at the text that he uses to justify his argument. He says this, And in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written in Isaiah 59, 20-21, And I'll pause there for a moment. Why didn't Paul just say in Isaiah 59, 20 to 21? Because there were no numbers back when he was writing this. You didn't have scrolls divided up into chapters and verses. You didn't have different translations of scrolls. You didn't have any study Bible scrolls. You didn't have anything other than actual scrolls that had the Hebrew language written in there. And so the people who knew and studied the scrolls had to be able to find the place for you when you were trying to quote something, which is also why some of the writers, I believe it's in Hebrews, he will say, as it says somewhere. He doesn't have a reference. Why? Because it's somewhere in the book of Isaiah, somewhere in the book of Jeremiah. And here, Paul doesn't give us the exact reference. And not only that, but because he is an apostle and inspired by the Holy Spirit, he doesn't even quote it that well. He doesn't memorize it that well. He would not have gotten top grades in Awana because he is not able to quote the verse perfectly. But that's not really his goal here. I believe the Holy Spirit, through the inspiration that he grants Paul, allows him to to provide this rough translation of what is being said in Isaiah. So don't go back into Isaiah 59, 20, and 21, and then stop me after the service and say, Pastor John, you won't believe it, but Paul didn't quote it perfectly. I know he didn't, but that's okay, because in this particular context, he has the right and the authority to do that based on what the Spirit is inspiring him to write. But he says this, the deliverer will come from Zion, He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. There is a focus here on Zion, which is another way to say Jerusalem. There is a focus on Jacob, which is another way to say Israel. And in Isaiah 27, verse 9, that's what your Romans 11, 27 is from. Isaiah 27, verse 9, he says, And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So here is the mystery. The mystery is that In the future, God will take away the sins of those whom he has chosen and elect from among the Jewish people. That he will, in that national ethnic sense, see them come to a realization that they have actually crucified the Messiah. Now, I don't spend a lot of time reading the Babylonian Talmud, but I did this week because of a reference that was made to it in a commentary that I referenced. And in this Talmud, in this commentary on the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, there is actually a section on uh, those particular uh, verses here in Isaiah and also ones that correspond in Zechariah, where even the Hebrew scholars there, even the Jewish scholars and rabbis say that they believe that what was being referred to here by the Old Testament prophets was the fact that Israel crucified their own Messiah. So this is not hidden even to the Jews. Now, 
I find it very interesting that Paul would say that one of the mysteries being revealed is that God will one day turn the hearts of the people back. And I came across an interesting quote that I thought I'd like to read to you for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one is I think it just clearly and concisely states the point. And the other is that this was written by James Boyce, who was a famous pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. So this is coming from a, a Presbyterian. This is uh, not what you'd expect from a Presbyterian minister to say the, what he's about to say about the nation of Israel. But sometimes when you have to say controversial things, you hide behind well-known scholars who are now dead. But he says this. His relationship to Israel is but a living illustration of his grace. The evidences of God's dealing with the Jews in history are all a reminder to all of mankind of God's grace. This is the point Paul made in his discussion of the same themes in Romans. The future of Israel is the theme of Romans 9 to 11. But when Paul came to the end of the section, he concluded, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. The New Testament emphasizes that today is the day of his grace. Today he is offering salvation to all. Now, with a bridge that Boyce is making between the first section here of Romans 11 and the next section that we're going to look at is that in every aspect of the gospel, in every aspect of that whole biblical theology of redemptive history, it is that it's all based on grace. And another word for grace here is mercy. And that's our second point, mercy. The first one was mystery, the second one is mercy. If you are a Bible underliner, I would recommend that you underline the words mercy. They appear over and over again here. Look at this next section. He says, as regards the gospel, speaking here of these Jews, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. I want to make sure we understand this. Let me just clarify what he does not say, okay? Notice this. He does not say, as regards the gospel, they are your enemies. Note that. He does not say that as regards the gospel, they are your enemies. The Jews are not your enemies. Who are the Jews enemies of? What does it say? God. They're enemies of God. They've rejected God. They've turned to other idols instead of God. They're adulterous. They're whoring after others instead of God. And so he says, as regards the good news that he has been proclaiming to the Gentiles in order to provoke the Jews to jealousy, these ones are enemies for your sakes, enemies of God. But, however, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. We have to acknowledge that. Now, there's a tension, there's a contrast there. Because on the one hand, he says, no, they are enemies for your sake, enemies of God, enemies of the gospel. But at the same time, God made a covenant with them. And because his covenants are eternal and irrevocable, he is not going to leave them destitute and abandoned. And so he wants to clarify for us what his mercy actually looks like. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Numbers 23, verse 19, helps us to understand that. There is no comprehensive replacement here. It's not like God has washed his hands completely of these people and instead filled in that gap with others. 
I believe that he has temporarily set them aside, that is what you're going to see in the book of Romans, in order that he might induce them to jealousy, that they might turn and repent and join the complete people of God, the true Israel of God, and experience all the joy of salvation when he returns for his elect. He says they're irrevocable. Now, what are these gifts and callings of God? Well, since you're in the book of Romans anyway, let's just back up a little bit and and, and remind ourselves of what they are. Go back here and uh, let's begin with Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. What is it that would condemn somebody? He begins by saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Why is that important? Well, that's important because he is not saying that the law has been utterly and completely discarded. He's not saying that that the law has just been completely forsaken, that he's changed his mind. He isn't saying that God had this plan whereby in the Old Testament, if you obey the law enough, you can get saved through works. And then he promised the Messiah, who unfortunately the Jews rejected, so he in turn rejected the Jews and decided to bring the gospel to the Gentiles instead. These are all teachings that can happen on either extreme when it comes to theology and especially eschatology. I believe what instead the Bible teaches is this, and here's my simple statement towards that end. God makes eternal covenants. He then fulfills every requirement of that eternal covenant in Christ. And then that perfect righteousness is given to all who put their faith in Christ, whether you were the original recipient of the covenant or not. This is the essence of what the Bible teaches about redemptive history. So therefore, when you put your faith in Christ and he gives you his righteousness, you can say, as Paul does to us here in Romans 8, that we have essentially obeyed the law completely, not because of anything we've done ourselves, but because of everything Christ did for us. That's a huge encouragement because you know what? From the moment after you get saved until the day you die, you are going to be living in a perpetual state of failure with respect to the law of God. I'm sorry to say it, but it's not going to change. You're going to continue to sin. And praise be to God that at the end, when you stand before him in the judgment, he's not going to look at all of your earthly doings and determine whether there's enough there to allow you to receive from him the rest of his glory. But he's going to say there is only one work that I'm going to evaluate, and that is the work of Christ, and it is complete and perfect and given to you at conversion. So... This is what he means when he says that it's irrevocable. Let me go one step further. And I do apologize in advance for taking extra time here, but I have to admit, I woke up this morning with a delightful thought that we didn't have really anything else to do in the service today. There wasn't communion. I wasn't racing to get through anything. I've got lots of time today, and I'm going to take it. 
So I hope that's okay. We're going to just take our time because this is really important. I want you to understand it. And um, I believe you'll be blessed. So look over at Romans 9. This is where we all began a few weeks ago. Romans 9. Look what he says. I want to start the very beginning because, remember, this is Paul's whole argument in 9, 10, and 11. And I believe it all holds together beautifully. He says, beginning in chapter 9, verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul loves the Jewish people. Paul has not written them off. Paul is one of them. Now, here's the benefits that they have. If I go back and remind myself about the gifts and the calling that are irrevocable, I would look to these. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So what are the gifts? What are the covenants? What are the irrevocable promises? What's the calling? It's all there. They were the ones who were chosen for this. They were the ones who were granted that. Of all the peoples of the earth, God says, I chose you, not because you were stronger or more in number or wiser, but because I chose to pour out my electing love upon you. And you were the opposite. You were small and unimpressive. And yet I chose to give you all of these things. And my gifts to you are not revocable. And my covenants are not easily broken. They are based on the very character and nature of God himself, fulfilled in Christ. And so, verse 30, he continues. You can go back to Romans 11. Verse 30, he continues, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that, by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. I confess, those two verses are somewhat challenging at first read, aren't they? Seems to be a confusing way of saying what he's trying to say. So if I can shed some light on it here, it might be helpful. Verse 30 again, he says, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy. Let's just stop for a moment. He says, You were, you Gentiles, who I'm writing to in Rome, were at one time entirely disobedient to the law of God, to the gospel, to anything about the Messiah. You lived your life in constant, perpetual rejection and disobedience of the truth. He just says, let's acknowledge it, let's admit it, and the Romans would. And I hope all of you would acknowledge that as well. I believe I could say the same thing to all of you, and myself included. There was a time when I lived in outright disobedience to the gospel. But notice what he says. It was really because of that that you now receive mercy, and you did so because of their disobedience. Who's the they? The they are the Jews. So you go, wait, wait a minute, now hold on a second. Are you telling me that the Gentiles were told that they received mercy from God through the gospel because the Jews disobeyed? And the answer is yes. What's the illustration that Paul gave last week about the branches? He says, because those disobedient branches who didn't believe the gospel were broken off, that made room for me to go over to this wild vine over here, clip off some of the branches from the Gentiles, and graft you in. 
And remember, he ends that section too by saying, now don't get all puffed up and arrogant about it. Because if I was able to break off these branches from the vine that was given the promise in the first place, how quick do you think I'll be to break off the vines that try to attach themselves from a foreign vine, the branches from a foreign vine? He says, look, this is not time to be arrogant about it. He just says that because of my providential plan that includes the disobedience of the Jews, it has opened a door for Gentiles, opened a door for us. We now have the opportunity by the same mercy, I might add, to receive all the benefits of the gospel that the Jews had. So, you're going to receive mercy because of their disobedience. So they, now turning his attention back to the Jews, verse 31, they too have now been disobedient. They've rejected the Messiah. They have rejected the truth. They, the ones who had all of these covenant promises at the very beginning, all the stuff mentioned at the beginning of Romans 9, they have become disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. Let's understand this. Here's the order. The Jews were given the covenants. The Jews were told Messiah was going to come. The Jews rejected the Messiah. The Gentiles, therefore, were given an opportunity to come in. The Gentiles now get saved. The Gentiles now create this state of jealousy in the hearts of the Jews. And because they were disobedient, they now, by the same mercy, receive the gospel and join the believing Gentiles, forming the one people of God. You see the order? It's very clear. It's very easy to understand what Paul is saying is happening here in redemptive history. And so he says in verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience. Now let me just say one statement about that, translated a little bit differently. For God has bound up, that's what consigned means, bound up, sort of imprisoned you could say. God has, um, has wrapped up. God has taken into custody all of those in disobedience. In the translation I have makes it sound as if God consigned people to some form of disobedience that he created for them to engage in. Whereas the actual language in the original would be translated better like this. For God has bound up all who are in disobedience. Meaning that if you disobey the gospel, if you reject, you are in this place of being bound up. You, you are a prisoner to it. You are a slave to sin. Your will is in bondage. You are trapped in it. And he says, I've done that for everybody, Jew or Gentile alike. They are equally bound up in the enslavement of their own sin in order that nobody can take pride in their belief in the gospel. Nobody can say, well, I was a free agent and I made up my own mind with my own free will. He says, no, you were trapped, bound up, consigned, imprisoned. So that, look at the purpose clause here, so that, in order that, he may have mercy on all. Now, our understanding of the passage rides on the word all here. It doesn't mean all humanity. Of course not. We're not universalists. We don't believe that every single person will believe the gospel and therefore be with us in glory. No, he obviously means all who are chosen by him, all who are the elect. So his mercy then is poured out upon those who are imprisoned by their own sinful will, eyes blinded, ears deaf, in order that in his grace and mercy he might call on all those types of people that he has chosen so that they would hear the gospel, respond and believe and be rescued. 
Mine eye diffused a quickening ray. I rose. The dungeon flamed with light, right? My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That, that, that idea of being released from prison, of being eyes opened, ears unstopped, that's what mercy does. And may I just remind you again that we serve a merciful God and we are to be merciful children. May I remind you that the mercy we show to one another is a mercy that comes from God. At the risk of perhaps offending some of you, may I remind you that you are not by nature merciful. You may think you are a naturally merciful person, but any mercy that is truly mercy is a mercy that comes from God. It's a mercy that models His mercy. And we need to be merciful people and a merciful church. Because the more you understand the gospel and the more you understand the utter enslavement that unbelievers have to sin, the more merciful you will be towards them and the more careful you will be to lay out all of the riches of the glory of the freedom that comes from really embracing and knowing what we preach is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You won't label somebody as being beyond the reach of the gospel. But it also impacts how you treat one another in the church, even other believers. Um, I, would, I would venture to say that there are times where we as Christians are not very merciful to other Christians, where we are not very merciful to those who have shown, been shown an equal level of mercy as us. We're, we're, we're like that servant. Remember the parable that Jesus gives, that servant that was forgiven the massive debt? And the first thing he does is he walks out and he finds another servant who owed him just a little bit of money and he strangles the guy and says, pay me back right now or I'm going to throw you in jail. Now, I know we read that parable and our first thought is, thank the Lord I'm not like that guy. I, I, I think some of us believe those parables are in the Bible just to make us feel better. Just to make us read it and go, wow, there are some bad people out there. I'm so glad I'm not one of them. Do you think Jesus' teachings are there so that we walk away from our reading of the scriptures puffed up with pride that we're not like that? I, I, I don't think so. I think they're all in there so that we look at that and say, you know what, there's a lot of me in that person. There's a lot of me in the worst of the characters that are described. So, so let's work on not only showing the mercy that we need to to unbelievers, but let's work on showing mercy to believers. Because there will come a time where you're going to want mercy yourself and you're going to be really glad that you've helped create a culture and a church where that's prevalent. Does that make sense? So we're all in agreement, right? Shake your heads. We're all in agreement. Excellent. This will now be known as Mercy Bible Church. Not really. I haven't made some executive decision. Don't do that. But all of this leads to our third point, and that is the glory. Look at the glory. See this in verses 33 through 36. This is really just a way for Paul to express his absolute amazement at the work of God and salvation. And he just can't control himself. And so he begins by saying, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. He says, let's talk about this for a moment. Let's consider it, the wisdom and the knowledge of God, the riches of it. He says there's no bottom to it. It's bottomless. I remember growing up watching shows or reading books. 
that talked about something or somebody being thrown into a bottomless pit. And, and I remember as a child lying there trying to conceive of something that is bottomless, trying to conceive of falling forever and ever and ever and ever. And, and maybe I was an unusual child, but I remember being so worked up over the fact that my mind couldn't even begin to grasp what that was like. It was a terrifying concept of something happening with no end. Now let's take that same terrifying concept and apply it to something glorious, which is that, notice, the riches of his wisdom and his knowledge have no end. You'll never get to the bottom of them. You could fall through this atmosphere of knowledge and grace and wisdom, and you'll never get to the bottom of it. You could fall forever and ever and ever and ever. And he says, oh, the riches of that. Oh, the depth of it. How unsearchable are his judgments. Once again, Paul reaches back in the Old Testament to quote Isaiah, Isaiah 40, verse 13. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For, here it is in verse 34, who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? His judgments will never be fully understood. His ways are inscrutable, meaning you can't question them. What he knows and what he does is for him to know and him to do and us to accept and believe and glorify him for because of Isaiah 40, 13. We don't know his mind. We don't give him advice. We don't offer him another plan. I mean, just consider for a moment how ludicrous it would be for us to think that we would go into God's presence and offer him a suggestion on how to manage the universe. We don't even allow ourselves to go there, but can we humble ourselves for a moment and, and acknowledge that there are times we do that? Not, not intentionally, but the way we do it is by grumbling and complaining about the plan he does have. I don't think this is going to be a difficult exercise for any of us, but think back on just this week and ask yourself how many times you've been disappointed, how many times things didn't go your way. You wanted something to happen, and it didn't happen. And how tempting it was for you to question the goodness of God. How tempting it was for you to question the wisdom of God. How tempting it was for you to question the plan of God. You say, I don't understand. I don't like it. I want it to go a different way. By, by allowing that to bother us, it's tantamount to walking into the very courtroom of heaven, demanding an interview and sitting down across from the throne of God and saying, let me recommend a better way. So can we all agree to just step back for a moment from our own complaining? And by the way, I'm only saying this with absolute assurance that you're doing it because I do it all the time. Okay? Believe me. I'm not like, uh, having conquered this, allow me to share my five principles for having complete trust in God. And when we're done that, you can pick up my book, Humility and How I Attained It. It's hard for all of us. It's hard for me. I grumble incessantly. I admit it. I am a grumbler. I'm a complainer. Things don't go the way I want it to go. Why? Because I think that I ought to be the sovereign ruler of my universe. And my own sinful heart is tempted all the time to question. So believe me, if, you're, if you have a problem with this, you can come to a very sympathetic, empathetic pastor. Like, I will not judge you. I've been there. I am there. But if I go back to this text, it helps me. It comforts me. Let's look at it again. It helps me. Why? Because he says that his ways are, I like that word, inscrutable. You know, they can't be screwed. 
means you can't doubt his wisdom. He knows more than me. He can't be counseled by me. Or, verse 35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? You see, no one puts God in their debt to make them worthy of his kindness. You can't buy God off. You you, you can't donate to his campaign like you would to a politician and expect in return that your lobbyists will succeed in getting the bills passed that benefit your corporation. God doesn't work that way. You can't buy him off. You can't put him in your debt. You can't give him some gift and then expect something in return. Isn't it awesome that God doesn't need our money? Isn't it awesome that God doesn't need anything from us? I mean, isn't it awesome to consider that you are praying to the God of the universe who is literally in every way imaginable unpersuaded by someone who is lobbying him to do something outside of his will? That's that's a remarkable thought. I'm grateful for that because I don't have very much to, to offer. And I'm grateful that no one else can persuade him off of his will. You can't give him a gift to make him indebted to you. So That means no gifts of money, no gifts of service, no gifts of sacrifice, no gift of self-martyrdom, no gift of holiness, no gift of reading your Bible every day for a year, no gift of doing anything that you think therefore makes God owe you something. Is it possible that you are doing that? Ask yourself, is it possible? Is it possible? If it's even possible, then, then let's go back and review this text. Is it even possible that you're doing something thinking that it's going to put you in a place where God will therefore be inclined towards doing what you want. And I only say it half-jokingly about, you know, reading your Bible every day or raising your kids a certain way or being faithful in your marriage or giving to your church or whatever it is. It's easy for us to think that if we check all these boxes off, then we come with a perfect report card to God and we say, now I've got straight A's, what are you going to do for me? And it shows up when we're astonished that he wouldn't answer our prayer the way we want it answered. That he doesn't say yes. I have a confession to make. As a father, it is my desire to please my children. In fact, I probably have a desire that would cause me to do something that is either unwise, unhelpful, uh, or un-something else. I was going to say three, and I only could think of two. I don't think ungodly, but whatever for them because I love them and I want them to be happy. And disappointing them bothers me. So, so in a sense, they, they have that over me. And, and some of you are parents, you know what that's like? If you're the father of a daughter, you really know what that's like, right? Husbands, some of you are like that with your wives. You just want to please them. You want to make them happy. You're willing to do things that might even be irresponsible in order to make them happy. I think we import that into our understanding of God sometimes and we say, well, therefore, He's like that with me, and so as long as I am good and I behave and he loves me, he's going to want to just give me the things that I think are good for me. And the Lord says, I don't do it that way. I give you what is good for you, what is best for you, but what is best according to his knowledge and his wisdom and the riches of his kingdom, right? So we embrace that. We accept it. He owes us nothing. Why? Verse 36, this is the answer. For... Sort of wrapping up his argument, Paul rests his case now in all of Romans 9, 10, and 11. It's really important. Okay? This is, this, this, is the, this is the scene in the movie when the lawyer rests his case. So depending on how old you are, you're all thinking of one particular lawyer, right? You know? Some of you are thinking of Perry Mason. Some of you are thinking of Matlock. And the rest of you are too young. But anyway, 
Here it is. Here's my, here's my big ending. Here's my big culmination. For to him, or for from him, and through him, and to him are all things. That's not just clever language. He wants to make it absolutely clear to, to, to you and I as readers that in addressing the nature of God himself, everything is from him. Meaning nothing self-initiates. Nothing is autonomous. Nothing is free, truly free, outside of him. It's all from him. It is all through him. He is the agency from which all things happen. Through him means through his ability, through his power. And all of it is to him, meaning to his end, to his purpose, to his glory, to his result, to his plan. It's all working from him, through him, and to him are all things, everything. This is why Jonathan Edwards described himself as being somebody who adopted the view that this is the best of all possible worlds. Meaning that even sin that God had ordained will result somehow in a peculiar way for the glory of God and it's going to be greater than than if he had not ordained it. And now we are in the deep end. And I am not going to say that I understand that fully, but I think it's biblical. God would not create a world in which his glory is in any way diminished. God created a world in all of redemptive history in such a way that his glory is magnified. And so Paul takes a little part of that in talking about the Jews and says it applies here to Israel. That even in the end, he will receive all the glory through what he chooses to do with Israel. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. In the very end, all the glory goes to him. Everything in this world culminates in his absolute, untarnished, maximum glory. And to that, Paul ends by saying, amen. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's what he means. So be it. I agree. I affirm. Now, there are just some implications here at the end, and then we'll be finished. So, three implications. And they're all implications for Gentiles. Because I think we Gentiles are are the audience here. So here are three implications for us Gentiles. Number one, the revelation to the Gentiles. What's revealed to us here? What's revealed to us here is that Israel, I think in verse 25, is the same as Israel in verse 26. And that it applies to Jacob in the context. And so chapter 11, verse 28, refers to a a nation that will be turned back to God. And it fits in well with what's been previously taught in chapter 11, verse 12 and verse 15. If I go back into those sections of Paul's epistle there in chapter 11, beginning in verse 12, he says, now if their, speaking of the Jews, trespasses means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? I think he's talking about Jews, nation of Israel. Verse 15 says, for their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. What will their acceptance mean? but life from the dead. This, I think, is a looking ahead to the fulfillment of the prophecy back in Zechariah. So if you have your Bible in front of you, you can turn back to the minor prophets. Minor prophets are right at the end of your Old Testament. 
begins with the major prophets, we call them, because they're longer, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then into Hosea and the minor prophets. Now towards the end, you've got two prophecies, Haggai and Zechariah. These were contemporaries. Haggai wrote about the resurgence and faithfulness and religion and the temple focus, and then Zechariah writes in the restoration of your relationship personally with God. And towards the end of Zechariah, look over there at chapter 12, gives this prophecy. I'm going to begin in verse 10 of chapter 12, and then we're just going to go through to verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1. It says this, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself. And he says the families will mourn by themselves and the men and the women will mourn by themselves. Down to chapter 13, verse one. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. I do believe that for us Gentiles, we are to understand that to be a future that includes ethnic, national Israel. There is a lot of debate as to the specific details of how that is going to be unfolded for us, but I do believe that those texts would support it. So the revelation to the Gentiles is that there is still in God's plan a future for the fulfillment of promises to that nation, which spiritually speaking, would include all the Gentiles who have believed as well. Number two, the warning to Gentiles. So that's the revelation to Gentiles. Number two, the warning to Gentiles is that we are not to be proud, but instead strive for the ingathering. We are not to be proud, but to strive for that ingathering. If, if what Paul says is true and that this has opened up a door for the Gentiles until all the fullness of the Gentiles are in, then we need to pray for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. Amen? I'm just Pray to that end. Pray that all of those who are chosen by God for salvation would believe, because that is what will result in the culmination of redemptive history. So there's a revelation, a warning. Number three, an instruction. Here's the instruction to the Gentiles, and it is this. It's an instruction about how we relate biblically to Jews. How do we relate biblically to Jews? I'm going to give you two answers. Number one, we pray for the Jews versus persecuting them for offenses that were part of God's plan. We pray for the Jews instead of persecuting them for offenses that were part of God's plan. Now, there are lots of books that you can read that help you to understand what the Jewish people have endured. If you haven't read Chaim Potok's book, The Chosen, yet, I would highly recommend it to you. It's a beautiful novel, one that helps to understand the culture of Hasidic Judaism. Another book which I read just last week is um, Eliezer Bezel's book, Night, what it was like for him to be rounded up in his home country of Hungary and ended up spending 
number of months in Auschwitz, only to be liberated and to write about it. One cannot deny the reality of brutal, systemic um, anti-Semitism that has resulted in the persecution of Jews. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago in our Sunday school class, and a book that is often referenced and was used by the Nazis to justify much of their behavior within the Lutheran church is a book that Luther wrote called The Jews and Their Lies. And um, most of it is a pretty simple explanation of the differences between Judaism and Christianity, but the very end, the application of it is a totally ungodly approach to their systematic persecution. We need to acknowledge that in our own history, there have been those who have persecuted them because of what they did to the Messiah, which you have to acknowledge is the truth, but you also then have to acknowledge that it was part of God's providential plan, which would result somehow in his glory in the end, according to Acts 2. So we don't persecute them for that. We pray for them. We pray that they would be redeemed, just like we would for any nation. Number two, another way of applying this idea of how we're instructed, it is this, that we provoke the Jews versus pandering to them by elevating their religious system. We provoke the Jews. Paul says, I'm provoking you. I'm provoking you to repentance by showing you the the, the better way. And I say we should provoke. Let's provoke by being Christians that show such a wonderful relationship with our Savior that they would say, I'm jealous of that and I want to be part of it. Versus pandering to them and saying, well, you know, we're really close because you Jews believe this and we believe this and we're going to do our little Seder services and we're going to have our Jewish, like, you know, stuff. Uh, we'll light a few Hanukkah candles for you around this time. We'll do all these things to kind of show that we're, we're just like you guys and we'll find some common ground. And no, none of that. Ditch all of that. It's all part of a system that's absolutely antithetical to what we believe as New Covenant Christians. So provoke them in a godly way to see that everything they're holding on to is on the verge of collapse and that the Messiah waits for them with open arms to receive them as the Lord and Savior that he is to all of us. Well, I quoted an Anglican to start, and then I quoted a Presbyterian. So I need to quote a Baptist as we close. And you can never go wrong with Charles Spurgeon, so let me just tell you what he says, because I think he ties together beautifully this idea of the coming kingdom with the glory of God. He says this, to my mind, the doctrine of the coming of Christ ought to inflame the zeal of every believer who seeks the conversion of his fellow men. And how can he be a believer if he does not seek this end? The Lord comes quickly. O sinner, come quickly to the Lord, or it may be too late for you to come. We who call you may soon be silenced by his advent, and mercy may have no more to say to you. Stand in a popish country and see them all together given to their idols and worshiping crosses and relics, and you will soon cry, Come, Lord Jesus, let Antichrist be hurled like a millstone into the flood, never to rise again. The vehemence of your desire for the destruction of evil and the setting up of the kingdom of Christ will drive you to that grand hope of the church and make you cry for its fulfillment. Jesus is not coming in a sort of 
mythical, misty, hazy way. He is literally and actually coming, and he will literally and actually call upon you to give an account for your stewardship. Therefore, now, today, literally, not symbolically, personally, and not by deputy, go out through that portion of the world which you can reach and preach the gospel to every creature according as you have opportunity. That's our calling. And that's how we honor the teaching of Romans 9 through 11. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your mercy and for your kindness shown to us. The revelation that you've given us here in this text about your eternal promises, your covenants that are irrevocable, and your grace and mercy that is poured out upon all whom you've chosen of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And even your plan that allowed for the separation of your chosen people in order that in their place these Gentiles would have the opportunity to receive from you the same covenant blessings and promises. And Lord, we do stand with even these venerable teachers of the past whom I've referred to today and many others that they're would seem to be, in your word, a clear teaching that there is a future even for this nation and a kingdom that is to come. And while there is certainly differences of opinion in terms of the timing and the precise execution of that, we do take confidence in you that your word will be fulfilled, that not one single promise will go unfulfilled, and that everything that happens will be for our good and for your glory and your glory alone. And so we can all say together as one people, amen.